Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christian Internet Radio. Tonight we're going to do something a, a little different. I'm on the road. I'm in the suburbs of Philadelphia. And tonight we decided because of the situation in Ukraine to do a program discussing that situation. I, I've never seen, it, it's, a, it's a damn shame that, that I see so many white nationalists accept um, propaganda as to what's transpiring in the Ukraine from either the Russians and, and outlets like RT Today or, or simply from, from the, um, well, well, Western news sources. The, uh, I, I've also seen several white nationalist websites, I'm not going to name them here, I've seen them get this, it's incredible to me that they get what's going on in the Ukraine so wrong. And there's one popular and relatively new website that I actually actually like a lot of the material they produce, but they've really mispunted, uh, I'm not going to say they dropped it because they, they, they've taken the ball on the Ukraine and they've just ran in the wrong direction. It, it's, it's really pretty pitiful that, that, um, that they would accept, well, well, basically that website is accepting a, Russian, a combination of Russian and American propaganda about Ukraine and, and running with it. it it's incredible. It, it's... Um, Mike Delaney of Postings.org is going to join me, I hope, as planned at some point in this program and, and for his own commentary. My position on the Ukraine, uh, I mean, I've been following the news and I read up a lot for this program. I'm not an expert on the Ukraine, but I think this has to be done at this point in time. And it was actually Mike that first suggested it, and, and he couldn't be here to start the program. Hopefully he'll be here later. The... Um, my position on Ukraine and a lot of the things that I know are happening in Ukraine in, in these past couple of months aren't from mainstream news sources. They're actually from one of our um, good Christian identity brethren who has actually lived in Ukraine for a long time. He's not Ukrainian himself, but he's married to a Ukrainian woman, has a wonderful family, and he's lived and worked there for uh, well, I don't know for how long, but it's at least 10, 12 years. So, so we have to uh, get, them, get the message straight on the Ukraine. A lot of people, and, and especially those websites that I've already discussed, they've been condemning nationalists in the Ukraine, and, and they've been condemning them very wrongly. It, it, it's actually a, a terrible situation to, to accept propaganda from, from mainstream media sources and, and, and other supposedly opposition media sources that really aren't opposition at all, and, and to accept that propaganda and, and condemn one's, um, I, I wouldn't say fellow patriots, but, but, but patriots in another white nation. So, so that's a, a horrible situation. That's what's actually going on, and, and tonight I'm going to try to rectify that. I'm not an expert on Ukrainian history. I, I've done a crash course. I've done a lot of reading this past week. I, I hope that I could get at, at least most of um, 
my, my point across with, with what I'm about to say and, and um, also express appropriately the opinion of, of the good Christian brethren who, who have informed me on, on this issue. The um, first thing that's important to understanding what's happening in the Ukraine is having some sort of background on politics of the Ukraine since the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Most white nationalists want to run their mouths about Ukraine and, and not have a clue what's been going on there the last 15, 20 years, or, or actually it's um, since 1991, right? It, it's 23 years. The first president of the Ukraine, when, when, when um, the Soviet Union fell apart, was a man named Leonid Kravchuk. Kravchuk, I'm probably going to butcher a lot of these names tonight, so, so I hope people excuse me for that. I'm going to try to get these notes into some kind of form where I could publish them. Leonid Kravchuk was a Communist Party politician all of his life. He declared the Ukraine independent from the crumbling Soviet Union in 1991. But when he did that, and he became a... a um, the, the, the leader of a free nation, you know, a nation free of the Soviets, technically, and, and it wasn't free of the Soviets at all. It's still not free of the Soviets. Let, let's get that straight. The, the, um, what, when Kravchuk became this leader of this supposed, supposedly free nation when he declared it independent, the Soviet bureaucratic infrastructure was retained. It was never done away with, and, and, and it's still there to this day, and we should keep that in mind. Kravchuk was not a freedom lover. Kravchuk was not an innovator. He was rather a compromise to the Ukrainians between Soviet traditionalists and the reformers who, who, who wanted to change Ukraine totally. And, and most of those reformers have been um, European-leaning. They have been um, EU-leaning. And, and it must be kept in mind that Ukrainians for the most part, except for the Russian speakers in Ukraine, of course, Ukrainians identify themselves fully as Europeans. And they are Europeans, there's no doubt. And, and most real Ukrainians are, are true and good white people. And there should be no doubt about that. After leaving office, Kravchuk joined a business and political group known as Key Holding or the Dynamo Group. You know, a man's associations reveal who that person is. This dynamo group was led by Ukrainian oligarchs, and, and I'll get to that statement soon, named Viktor Medvedchuk. Medvedchuk is a pro-Soviet Ukrainian lawyer. And I, I'm not, this name is hard to pronounce. It's H-O-Y-H-O-R-I-Y, Priori, or, or whatever, Circus, S-U-R-K-I-S. Circus is a Ukrainian Jew businessman and politician. So, so we see where Kravchuk, you know, he gets, he, he leaves office after declaring the, the, the Ukraine independent, and he joins this, this group led by this Medvedchuk and Circus. And, and Medvedchuk, these people are, are significant figures in Ukrainian politics ever since the dissolution of the Soviet Union. He joins these oligarchs and, and um, 
This group is formally organized as the Social Democratic Party of Ukraine. And this is what's significantly different about um, American politics as we generally perceive it to be. I, I mean, we have our exceptions, and most of those exceptions are Jews. And, and European or, or Ukrainian politics in specific. In Ukrainian politics, the oligarchs, the, the businessmen who became millionaires and billionaires off of looting and pillaging Ukrainian Ukrainian state property, property that was supposed to belong to the people of Ukraine under the communist system and, and was sold off mostly for a song because the people of Ukraine had no money under the communist system, that, that they were for the most part poor and oppressed people. But when Ukraine privatized, all of that, all of that property basically went to, to a great extent, to alien elements. And, and most of those alien elements were either, well, they were either Jews or they were select Ukrainians or Russians who, who were supported and, and financed by Jews. That, that's how these oligarchs became oligarchs, that because they, they, they assumed control by getting cash from outside the nation of all of Ukraine's industry and infrastructure, and, and, and these men in Ukraine have taken not a behind-the-scenes role in, in politics as billionaires and, and megalomaniacs often do in America. They've taken a direct role in Ukrainian politics. They've actually sat in parliament, taken cabinet positions, and, and controlled Ukrainian politics directly, even though some Ukrainian politicians are men of ideals who had been backed by commercial interests. So, so this, that these oligarchs, they're called oligarchs, but they're actually, a lot of them actually engage directly in politics and, and sit in ministerial positions and, and seats in parliament themselves. So the, this Leonid Kravchik organizes this, um, the, this business group in at which he joins, organizes the Social Democratic Party of Ukraine. And, and since the Orange Revolution, that party's been marginalized, but it's only been replaced by another beast. Despite its formal centrist and social democratic slogans, the party was widely associated with big business, organized crime, corruption, and media bias, because there has never been a free press in Ukraine. Not, 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 not a truly free press. And, and, you know, even in America, we think we have a free press, and we do, but it's all owned by Jewish business interests, and, and we don't have a free press. So, so we're not in much better shape. The second president of Ukraine, 1994 to 2005, was Lenin Kuchma. Kuchma, I'm probably butchering that name, too. It might be Kukma or something. Kuchma had a career in aerospace engineering. And he was a Communist Party member since 1960. So what we see is the first two Ukrainian presidents were lifelong Communist Party members. I mean, that, that they were no better than, than Marxists and, 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 and apparatchiks for, for the Soviet system. In 1976, Kuchma was the Communist Party chief at the plant where he worked. And a, central Ukraine, a Ukrainian Central Committee member by the end of the 1980s, 
he became a communist critic. He entered Ukrainian politics in 1990, and he was the prime minister under Kravchuk. So Kuchma was the prime minister under Kravchuk, the first president of Ukraine. In Kuchma's first election, he had little support in Western Ukraine, and Western Ukraine is where the highest concentration of real Ukrainians are in the West and the North. And, and, and there's a lot of Russians in the mix in the South, especially in the Crimea, which is majority Russian, and almost 100% Russian speakers, and in the East, where there's also a lot of Russian speakers and, and, and um, Russians and people who lean towards Russia. Kuchma, in his second election, had strong support in the West, but lost support in the East. This means that he gained popularity among the more Ukrainian nationalist Western districts after his first term in office and, and when, being, when he ran for a second. While Kuchma signed a trade and cooperation treaty with Russia, he also talked about Ukrainian eligibility for membership in the EU by 2011. I'm not saying that's a good thing, but the people in Ukraine who are pro-Ukrainian, they identify themselves more with Europe and they detest the Soviet system. The Ukrainians suffered greatly under the Soviet system, they just, especially during the Holodomor, which was basically a, a, uh, a Ukrainian holocaust, a holocaust against the Ukrainian people perpetrated by the, the Soviet government. The, the, um, so, so a lot of Ukrainians, even though that they're um, Ukrainian nationalists even, that they seem to favor Europe only because of that their, that their, that their repression and, and their horrible mistreatment at the hands of the Soviets that they want to break away from the Soviets. And, and we're going to talk more about that later. Kuchma, his political career was marred by a collection of tapes which were allegedly of Kuchma discussing high-level criminal activities, including corruption and murder. Charges were thrown out due to questions of the tapes' authenticity and the lack of supporting evidence. I'm going to quantify that with a quote from Wikipedia. I know Wikipedia is a, 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 not, not a, a reliable source, but when Wikipedia's articles are well-cited, they're useful. According to a Wikipedia article on Kuchma, one of the taped conversations refers to the St. Petersburg Immobilian and Vitalgongs and, and, and AG a company suspected of facilitating St. Petersburg mobsters, Colombian drug lords, and transcontinental money laundering. Vladimir Putin was one of the company's advisors from 1992 until he was elected as president of Russia in 2000. On the tapes, Kuchma discusses Putin's Europe-wide operation to get possession of all documents, meaning documents related to that company, which could be used as evidence. So, so that, I only took that quote because it indicates to us the nature of the material on the tapes, and that way we can understand the nature of the charges against Kuchma, which were thrown out for lack of evidence, right? One prime minister under Kuchma was a man named 
Pablo Lazarenko, and I'm citing Pablo here as a good example. He surely isn't the only one. They're all thieves. All these Ukrainian oligarchs have been thieves. They've enriched themselves at the expense of Ukrainian people. The... Um, Pablo Lazarenko, he allegedly, he was a prime minister under Kuchma, he allegedly stole $200 million from Ukraine. Now, he did six or seven years in prison after fleeing Ukraine in the United States for money laundering, wire fraud, and extortion. And the last I could find of him, he, he is sitting, he was released in prison recently, within the last two years, and he is sitting on a ranch in California. And his case is exemplary of how Western governments have treated these crooks from the Ukraine. Because none of the Western governments ever tried to return stolen money, stolen oligarch money back to the Ukraine. Under the thumb of politicians and foreign governments alike, with the media entirely, the Ukraine media being entirely in Jewish oligarch hands, Ukraine has been held captive for the profits of a few. The oligarchs can safely keep their money abroad, and the, the Lazarenko case, I believe, is, is um, a good example of this, and they, could stay, and, and, and they could stay in Ukraine, bleeding the nation dry until they have to flee. Lazarenko fled. Now, he was what was... Um, convicted of certain crimes in the United States, but he's sitting comfortably on a ranch in California. And, and, and he's still, a, I mean, I couldn't afford to buy a ranch in California. He's still, his family has, has, is quite wealthy, and, and they got wealthy by looting that wealth from the Ukraine. These things are never an issue in the Western media. They're rarely raised in the Western media, and especially in the EU. And that's mostly because the EU doesn't want to face the threats of gas cutoffs from the Russians because the Russians always support these oligarchs. And, and that's absolutely clear right now in the case of Viktor Yankovich. Now, the so-called Orange Revolution occurred when election results regarding Kuchma's replacement were challenged. Now, we, we should all remember um, that the Orange Revolution back from the... Uh, I don't know, it must have been, it was 2004, so Bill Clinton was still the president when this was going on, and, and um, power was was shifting to the Bush, the incoming Bush administration, but for most of the, well, well for all of 2004, Clinton would have been the, the president. And, and the Orange Revolution was, I remember it being in the mainstream media, media outlets every single day. The Orange Revolution occurred when the election results regarding Kuchma's replacement were challenged. A man named Viktor Yankovic was prime minister under Kuchma. Yankovic is also the same man who has just run out of the presidency of the Ukraine this month. Running in 2004 to replace Kuchma after the second round of voting on 22nd November 2004, there were indications that Yankovic had won the election by fraud which caused the opposition and independent observers to dispute the results, leading to 
the Orange Revolution. Kuchma was urged by Yankovic and by Victor Medvedchuk, that, 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 that oligarch businessman, that billionaire businessman who, who's in the Ukrainian government at this time, he was urged, and, and Yank, Medvedchuk, let me say Medvedchuk was the head of the presidential office under Kuchma. So, so he was um, in, in a pretty high position. And, and he, he, he was the Ukrainian lawyer who was a, a, a partner of the Jewish oligarch circus. Yankovic and Medvedchuk urged Kuchma to declare a state of emergency and hold the inauguration of Yankovic, and Kuchma denied that, re- denied that request. When, and, and thereafter, Yankovic publicly accused Kuchma of a betrayal. Kuchma refused to officially dismiss Yankovic, however, after the parliament passed a motion of no confidence against the, the cabinet, and, and basically Yankovic's government on December 1st. Kuchma left the country after he refused to um, inaugurate Yankovic after those election results. He left the country after the government was dissolved, with the, with, well, was um, given the vote of no confidence anyway. Kuchma returned to Ukraine in March 2005. In political retirement, Kuchma said in October 2009, that he would vote for Yankovic at the Ukrainian presidential election in 2010, which we've seen now that Yankovic actually ran and won, right? The election that Yankovic had, had um, held office in, here in 2014 when he was expelled once again. In a document dated February 2nd, 2010, uncovered during United States Diplomatic Tables Weeks, Kuchma, in a conversation with M. Ambassador John Keck, the ambassador to the Ukraine from America, called the voters' choice between Yankovic and, and Yulia Timoshenko, and she's another name that we, what we should become familiar with. He called that a choice between bad and very bad. So he didn't like either of them, even though Kuchma had Yankovic as his prime minister. And, and he praised another candidate named Arseny Yatsenyuk instead. Now, Arseny Yatsenyuk, we see, is a candidate for president in 2004. He's the man that just became the prime minister, the interim prime minister of Ukraine a couple of days ago. So all of these people were around and running for office in the Orange Revolution in 2004, and we're going to see that they're more interconnected than that. As of September 2011, Kuchma still believed that Yankovic was the real winner of the 2004 election. He, he believed that, Yank, that Yankovic won that election and that there was no fraud, evidently. Many American non-governmental organizations were operating in Ukraine during the Orange Revolution. And, and there's good reason, and, and I believe it myself, that, that um, Russians and, and Russians also believe this, and, and not everything the Russians believe are lies, that this has been a geopolitical battle for, for, um, for, for a long time now, 20 years now. They believe that the CIA and, and other Western intelligence agencies were responsible for the Orange Revolution. And that's because Yankovic is strongly pro-Russian, and America wanted 
a Ukrainian president who would stay on the course of bringing the Ukraine into the EU. What is plainly evident in all of this is the crash of Kushma, Yankovic, and the oligarch politicians, Medvedchuk and Circus, they're all political bedfellows. These people have been running Ukraine. These people, this group of people, have been running Ukraine for nearly all the time since it gained independence in 1991. There was only a four- or five-year period, five-year period where they did not run Ukraine uh, until the other day when, when that changed once again. I've been informed that Mike Delaney is on the call. Hello, Mike. Maybe he's not. Mike? Hey, Bill? Hello? Hello? Mike's audio is terrible. I can't even hear him. Mike, I can hardly hear you. Hey, I'm going to be home in like five more minutes here, and I'll be on my regular phone. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to continue with my presentation and the um, the third president of Ukraine, Viktor Yushchenko. Yushchenko, he was president from 2005 to 2010. After the Orange Revolution succeeded in forcing new elections, Yushchenko defeated Yankovich by a margin of 52 to 44. In the, in the re-election that was forced. Running for re-election in 2010, Yushchenko only got about 5% of the vote. He was poisoned and disfigured after an, after an assassination attempt in 2004. So, so the pro-Russians, Yushchenko is basically a, a European and EU-leaning liberal, and, and I'll get back into that later, but Yushchenko was poisoned during this, this process of being elected to the president of Ukraine, so, and, and he was disfigured from it. He was poisoned with a, with, with a dioxin substance that was known to exist. It, it was one of the primary ingredients in Agent Orange, and, and maybe that's apt. This is the Orange Revolution that, that earned him, that, that gave him the presidency. Yushchenko was governor of Ukraine's central bank from 1993, so, so he'd been around... Ukrainian politics for quite some time. He, he's also an insider. He was governor of Ukraine's central bank under those first two presidents of, of the Ukraine, Kravchik and, and Kuchma. And he was prime minister under Kuchma from 1998 to 2001. But he was Kuchma's surprise second choice for prime minister because Kuchma's first choice was not ratified by Congress, by the Ukrainian Congress, of course, right? Yushchenko began his banking career in 1976. So he, he was a career Soviet banking bureaucrat, bureaucrat from 1983 until 1991. So Yushchenko is not an outsider. Even though he, he's portrayed himself as being the opposition, he's certainly not an outsider, and he was just another Soviet bureaucrat. Pandering to Jews in the 2004 election, 
is a good indication of Jewish power and influence in the Ukraine. And it's admitted by Wikipedia that Yushchenko built his campaign on face-to-face communication with voters since the government prevented most major TV channels from providing equal coverage to candidates. Meanwhile, his rival, Yankovich, frequently appeared in the news and even accused Yushchenko, whose father was a Red Army soldier supposedly in President Auschwitz during the war, of being a Nazi, even though Yushchenko actively reached out to the Jewish community in Ukraine and his mother is said to have risked her life by hiding three Jewish girls for one and a half years during the Second World War. What does that indicate? That indicates that in the Ukraine, the same um, pandering to Jews in order to win an election goes on that, that we see here in America. It's, it's no different. Politics is no different in, in the Ukraine. And, and the pandering to Jews is probably worse in, in a lot of respects. Even um, lately, one of the nationalist organizations has been said to be um, pandering to Jews. I'm not, I haven't been able to verify that yet, but that, that's the right sector. So even though Yushchenko was supposed to be an alternative in 2004, he was the beneficiary of the, the Orange Revolution. He was also an old-time Soviet Party operative who was in most respects no different from his predecessors. However, Yushchenko represents the liberals among the Ukrainian oligarchs. And his prime minister was Yulia Timoshenko, another liberal who herself is often considered to be one of the oligarchs. Among his political objectives were proposals to implement IMF reforms and to join the EU, both of those represent a surrender of Ukrainian sovereignty, that they take the Ukraine away from the, 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 the Russian overview and, and, and that they remove Ukraine from the Soviets, but to drive them into the hands of the EU and the IMF, that's not doing the Ukrainian people any favor. Yushchenko had close ties to another oligarch, David Zvanya, a former head of the Agitation and Propaganda Department for the USSR Communist Party Central Committee. Nice guy. Yushchenko, uh, I'm sorry, Zvanya was even um, one of the godfathers of, of Yushchenko's children. Yushchenko accused Zvanya of being one of the parties involved in his dioxin poisoning, while Zvania boldly claims that Yushchenko falsified his poisoning. That poisoning is evident. It's all over. The evidence of it's all over Yushchenko's face. He had a very bad acne condition as a result of it, and it was scientifically documented in Switzerland and elsewhere. It's highly dubious that Yushchenko was not poisoned. He almost certainly suffered some kind of uh, poisoning trauma. So, so the case has never been settled. In 2002, Yushchenko 
And his prime minister, Yulia Timoshenko, and, and we should know her from recent news because she was actually placed in prison by, by the um, by, by 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 the, um, the, the her, her political opposition, right? The, the Yankovic, or, or I'm sorry, the Yanukovych crowd, right? It, and, and Timoshenko was recently released as soon as Yanukovych was driven out of office. And, and there was big headlines made about that in, in this past week. Well, well, Yushchenko and Timoshenko, who was his prime minister, along with Alexander Moroz of the Socialist Party of Ukraine and Petro Simonenko of the Communist Party of Ukraine, those people, those party leaders all issued a joint statement concerning the beginning of a state revolution in the Ukraine. So, so we see Yushchenko, who, who was the beneficiary of the Orange Revolution, Timoshenko, his prime minister, in 2002, they were aligning themselves with communists and, and Marxists. These are the kind of people that, that have run the Ukraine and, and they're supposed to be the opposition to those to, to the um, to, to to Yanukovych and, and the Ukrainian oligarchs who lean towards the Russians. They're no better. They're absolutely no better. These people in power today in Ukraine are no better. The communists later stepped out of that alliance. However, the other three parties remained allies until mid-2006. This is one plain indication of the political sentiments of Yushchenko and Yulia Timoshenko. Among Yushchenko's first major appointments when he came to office in 2004 was a man named Petro Poroshenko. Petro Poroshenko is another oligarch. He's a billionaire businessman, and Yushchenko appointed him to the Secretary of the Security and Defense Council for Ukraine as he was president. In 2004, I'm sorry, in 2005, let me check with Mike Delaney's. Mike, are you with me? Do we have a communications problem? I can't hear Mike. Okay, thanks, Matt. People who are getting bumped or having a problem hearing me on TalkShoe should probably try a stream at ChrisTheGenny.org. Thank you, RP. ChrisTheGenny.org is, is uh, it, it's a more direct line and it's a much better uh, quality audio usually than TalkShoe. I'm sorry for the interruption. In 2005, former President Kratchev accused exiled Russian tycoon Boris Berezovsky of financing Yushchenko's presidential election campaign and provided copies of documents showing money transfers from companies controlled by Berezovsky to companies controlled by Yushchenko's official backers. Now, now we've seen Berezovsky is the... the, the uh, the, the, the Jewish oligarch that Putin had problems with, and that's why he's an exiled Russian tycoon, right? Him and Putin basically had a political clash, and for that reason, Berezovsky was, well, well, he was either going to be arrested or he had to flee the country. He, he, um, 
You, you know, Putin came off looking as, as a great defender of Russia during that to a lot of white nationalists, and, and that's a total mischaracterization because Putin basically what was only cared about his own political image. And there were, well, well countless other Jewish oligarchs who, who became billionaires during the dissolution of the Soviet Union of property which supposedly belonged to the Russian people, and, and Putin has allowed them to operate in Russia with, 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 with little resistance, and in fact, with, with, with a great degree of cooperation with them. If anybody doesn't think that Vladimir Putin isn't in bed with the Jews, he's a fool. Kreischer came up with documents showing money transfers from companies controlled by Berezovsky to companies controlled by Yushchenko's official backers. Berezovsky confirmed that he met Yushchenko's representatives in London before the election and that the money was transferred from his companies, but he refused to confirm or deny that the money was used in Yushchenko's campaign. In August 2006, Yushchenko appointed his one-time opponent in the presidential race, Viktor Yankovich to be the new prime minister after his party of regions won the parliamentary elections. So much for the Orange Revolution. It was over by 2006, and, and it was really over before that because the whole thing was just a, a show. Because all these politicians are in bed together. Timoshenko, Yushchenko, Yankovich, all of these Jewish oligarchs, they're all in bed together. They play the same damn game that they play in the United States, Democrat, Republican, Democrat, Republican. And in, in Ukraine, the names are a little different. The names of the parties are different, but it's the same scheme. The fourth Ukrainian president, Viktor Yanukovych, 2010 until last week. Yanukovych had a couple of criminal convictions as a youth which he was charged with having expunged illegally. And even his numerous academic credentials are all said to be fraudulent. In addition to fraudulent academic credentials, he has the military rank of ma major and there's no record of military service. He was the governor of Donetsk Oblast from 1997 to 2002. And he was prime minister under both Kuchma and Yushchenko. Now, let's get this, let, let, let's understand this because Yanukovych is accused of basically what amounts to electoral fraud. Because of Yanukovych's electoral fraud, he has to have a new election with Yushchenko. Yushchenko beats him in the election. And then, a short time later, Yanukovych becomes Yushchenko's prime minister. What's up with that? These are all, it's one big political party. It's actually several, technically several political parties, but it's really one big political party. And, and, and the, the jokes on the Ukrainian people, and, and this is no different than American politics, and the Bushes and the Clintons, and the Bushes and the Clintons, and they're all actually on the same team. Historically, Yanukovych's foreign policy objectives gave lip service to the idea of Ukraine as a member of the EU. 
While on the other hand, Yanukovych is a Russophile, wanting even to have Russia, Russian accepted as a second state language in the Ukraine. Yet Yanukovych resisted NATO membership and insisted upon mixed military cooperation with both NATO and Russia. Recently, however, Yanukovych rejected a pending EU association agreement in favor of a Russian loan bailout and closer ties with Russia. His party, the Party of Regions, has much of its power base in the East and in the Crimea, where the Russian language speakers are in a majority. In fact, the Crimea is almost 100% Russian language speakers. Overall, as much as 35% of the population of Ukraine are said to be native Russian speakers, but not all Russian speakers are Russians. They are concentrated in those regions. The Russian speakers are concentrated in the Crimea and, and in the eastern border provinces where Ukraine borders on Russia. The Western media is currently promoting the idea that the primary objective of the Euro-maiden protesters is EU membership. That is not true. That's propaganda. That's Western media propaganda. While many of the liberals taking part in the protests do seek EU membership, just as many of the protesters were nationalists, and the nationalists want Ukraine in the Ukrainian independence. They do not want EU membership. The most common sentiment, however, amongst the protesters is a, a desire to end the corruption of the Soviet-era bureaucracy and the virtual control of the country by the corrupt oligarchs. Many of them are Jews, some of them are, are, are Russians, and some of them are Ukrainians. The oligarchs are the primary opponents of the demonstrators. And we've seen, if you study the history of these first four Ukrainian presidents, you'll see that these oligarchs, that they're always playing both sides of the fence. That both of these major parties in the last 24 years of Ukrainian history even though those major parties have had several different names, that they've um, that they, they've had dissolutions and, and reunions of smaller political blocks in, in the parties, and they change their names all the time. Well, well, they're basically the same crowd of people. That they're basically the same crowd of people in bed with the same crowd of Jews who who are using this political scheme to loot and pillage the Ukraine. A general account of what led to the demonstrations is this. Russia bribed Yanukovych not to sign an agreement of association with the European Union, and Russia promised a $15 billion loan in return for a policy of repression, continued repression, in Ukraine. After accepting the loan, Yanukovych illegally forced legislation through Parliament that was closely modeled on similar laws in, in Moscow, restricting freedom of speech and the right to assembly. Right after the Kremlin, right after he did that, the Kremlin freed up a $2 billion installment on that loan. Right after that, Yankovic started ordering the shooting of the protesters. Once he ordered the shooting of the protesters, 
many more Ukrainian citizens became infuriated, and especially the nationalists. And that led to increased protests. That led to the, to the, uh, the tearing down of the Soviet icons the tearing down of the statues of, of Lenin and, and, and other Soviet idols that we, we saw. Well, well, we could see that it ripped. I don't know if we saw it on the news because I don't watch the news, but I know that we could see plenty of it on YouTube. The, the, uh, the, the people of the Ukraine are just disgusted at the Soviet corruption. They're disgusted at the vestiges of the Soviet bureaucracy, which still operates in the Ukraine to this day, which has never been purged, and the Soviet communist-style mentality of that bureaucracy and, and its corruption, it's never been purged. It's been 24 years since the fall of the Soviet Union. And that, that, this, um, that these oligarchs and, and, and their, their repression of the Ukrainian people, that's what the protesters are protesting against. The governments of the West are trying to characterize the reasons for the protests as Yankovic's refusal to sign the agreement with the EU, but that's only a side issue. Oppression and corruption in the Ukraine is the real reason for the protests. On the other side of the coin, the Russians are accusing the protesters of being fascists and Nazis, and, and none of that is true. While some of the protesters, and, and the ones that did the work, are definitely the nationalist groups, especially the, the, the Swoboda Party and the right sector. And the Swoboda Party, the Freedom Party, is a, is a, is a nationalist party in Ukraine with, with its power base in western Ukraine. And it's, uh, it has national socialist leanings, and they are ethnic nationalists, the Swoboda Party. They were the most press, that they were the most visible of all the parties in the protests, and they, along with the right sector and, and a couple of smaller national parties, supplied all the muscle and did all the hard work behind the demonstrations. They're the ones that pulled the statues down, but the the, the vast majority of the protesters were not affiliated with those parties. They sympathized with them but they weren't affiliated with them. And a lot of the protesters were liberals. And it's the liberals under this um, Yulia Timoshenko, who we've seen was in bed with not, not only um, in the past with, with Yushchenko, and, and they were all associated with these other uh, Jewish oligarchs. Well, it's Timoshenko's party, Timoshenko's party, that, and, and that's why she was released from prison immediately. It's her party, and they're liberals. It's her party that benefited the most from these demonstrations and its immediate political aftermath, and, and not the nationalists at all. The nationalists did not take over the Ukrainian government as some idiotic white nationalists here in America are claiming. The Ukrainian nationalists, they basically are left in a holding pattern for the next election, and, and we'll discuss that shortly. Uh, I'd like to know if, if, if ProSync is on the call, if Mike has made it to this program, or, or, or if there's still a technical problem. No, I'm, I'm here. Can you hear me well, now? Mike? Yeah, can you hear me now? I can hear you, but it, it's a little choppy. Hello? 
Hey, how's it going? I uh, yeah, just got in the house. I was listening to you on the road here. Um, so hopefully uh, we can we continue on from this point and and keep going with the show. Okay, I'm going to go on my presentation because I'm I'm also having a hard time understanding you. I don't know why there's some kind of glitch in the Skype. The, the Skype on on my streaming computer had had upgraded itself just before this program. Last week it wasn't a problem, and and this week after this upgrade, I'm having a problem with it all. So I can't stand Microsoft. It, it was an involuntary upgrade. I started Skype, and it it just gave me a notification that it was updating. So are you having a hard time hearing what I'm saying then, or is anybody in the chat room having a hard time? Okay, I want to talk about the political groups in power in Ukraine before the government was dissolved, just in, in, in the last, what, what is it, two weeks now? It might be two weeks. I think it's about a week and a half. But these political groups... Understanding who they are gives us a better understanding of, of what's actually really happened in the Ukraine without some of the propaganda that we hear from either side. The first political group I want to discuss is the Party of Regions. That this, a lot of this is going to be brief, but I'm going to discuss some of these groups again later on. The Party of Regions is the party that was in power. Ukraine's parliament is 450 seats. The Party of Regions only had about 128 of those seats. That's it. They are a Russophone for the most part, meaning that most of them speak Russian, and the Russophile party, they, they lean towards the Soviet Union. This is the party of Viktor Yanukovych. Now, it's really not a party. It's really an amalgamation of parties, and some of those parties have diverging interests, but they've all gathered under this umbrella, and there's a lot of this in Ukrainian politics. Maintenance of Soviet-era politics and corrupt bureaucracies, and, and, and that, that seems to be the main charges of the people, of the demonstrators against this party, the, the pro-Russian parties, they're, and, and, and they make up this party of regions, their binding creed is the defeat of fascism, the defeat of the Nazis. These people represent the conservatives in the Ukraine. The conservatives, you know, that word has different meanings in different contexts. But when you say conservative in this context, you're thinking about people who want to preserve the Soviet system. They want to conserve that Soviet bureaucracy. They want to conserve their Soviet Marxist values. That, that's the party of reason, regions, and, and that's what we see that in the politics of Yanukovych. And they were the party in power. That they're the party that had the government. Now, they were joined by non-affiliated ministers and, 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 and actually had control of 140 seats through those, through, through those that, that, that block, if you want to call it that. that now, the opposition parties are, are many, but only four of them really matter here. The, um, the Communist Party of Ukraine is still there, and they hold 32 seats in parliament. Now, 
the next group is the Ukrainian Democratic Alliance for Reform. They are a centrist party. They're led by this, this gentleman that used to be a boxer. He, he's kind of famous for that name, Vitaly Klitschko. They are anti-corruption, and they are in favor of, a, of the association agreement with the EU. Klitschko, has, um, he, he's a prominent minister, and, and he's uh, actually engaged in, in high-level meetings outside of the Ukraine with government officials, even with um, Yasenia, who's the new interim prime minister, and we'll talk a little more about him later. Klitschko, a lot of, uh, a lot of Ukrainians believe that Klitschko is the front-runner to win a presidential election in, in May. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. The next group is the um, All-Ukrainian Union Swoboda. Swoboda means freedom. It's the Freedom Party. They are a national socialist-leaning party, and they are ethnic nationalists in the Ukraine, and we'll talk a little bit more about them later, I hope. They only have 36 seats. They're the only nationalist party that has any power at all in the Ukraine. They only have 36 seats in the parliament. They only have 8% of the parliament seats. They are really, that their hands are, are more or less tied. The centrist party under Klitschko has 42 seats. And, and, and their hands are more or less tied. That's not even 10%, right? The next party to discuss is the all Ukrainian Union, and, and they have a name very similar to Svoboda, the All Ukrainian Union Fatherland Party. And they've taken a few other names too, and I'm going to disregard them. The All Ukrainian Union Fatherland Party, that's a good name for a nationalist party, but they're not nationalist at all. They are not a nationalist party, they are Western leaning liberals. They are the party of Yulia Timoshenko and Arseny Yatsenyuk. Now, as soon as the president of the Ukraine was tossed out of office last week and, and was replaced, he was replaced by somebody from this party. And as soon as that man took office, Yulia Timoshenko was released from prison and now, later in the same week, Arseny Yatsenyuk, another member of the same party, he was named the interim prime minister. Now, Yulia Timoshenko, she was the prime minister under Yushchenko in, in, in 2004. And she wasn't a nationalist then. She was a, West, a Western-leaning liberal. Yet Senyuk is not a nationalist. He is, is a, an economist and an autocrat. And even though he's officially in the records as a Catholic, Ukrainians suspect that he's a Jew. Now, whether that's true or not is immaterial. The man is a central banker and an economist. And he's not a nationalist by any means. Timoshenko... Yulia Timoshenko has a long political record in the Ukraine, and she's a Western-leaning liberal. 
Yeah, she's pro-EU, and she's anti-Soviet. It's the Soviets that are labeling these people as Nazis and as nationalists only for one reason, because they're anti-Soviet, because they favor the EU and the West. When the Soviets say that Nazis have taken over the government, they're referring to the party of Yatsenyuk and Timoshenko. These people have a long political track record in the Ukraine. They've always been Western-leaning liberals. They've never cared about nationalists in, in the ethnic sense. They've never cared about nationalist interests in the Ukraine from the point of a nationalism like the Svoboda Party has. They've never, so, so this is all Russian propaganda. But when you hear um, certain websites say, oh, the nationalists in, in the Ukraine, that they forced out the government and, and they, um, they put the government in the hands of Jews so they, they failed, that's a lie. That's a, a, a drastic lie because the nationalists in the Ukraine are, the, are, are represented in Parliament by the Svoboda Party, and the Svoboda Party is helpless to do anything about this. When, when the Party of Regents dissolved, when Yanukovych was driven from office, a lot of those ministers from the Party of Regents threw their votes behind Timoshenko's party, and that's how they came to power this past week. That's how they did it, because they, have, they, have, they started out with 88 seats in Parliament, a hell of a lot more than the real nationalists had, a hell of a lot more than Klitschko's centrist party had. They had 88 seats in Parliament. All of these party of regions ministers, come, deputies come over to them, and now that's how they were, in, that's how they were able to install their own people into the government, into this interim government. It's that simple. But this interim government in the Ukraine is not a nationalist government. That's Soviet propaganda. This interim government in the Ukraine is a Western-leaning liberal government. That's what they are. That's what Timoshenko was. Her track record proves it. In 2002, she was aligning, aligning herself with communists. That's what Yatsenyuk is. His track record also proves it. There's no doubt these people are not nationalists. Don't listen to RT. Don't listen to Russia today. It's simply Putin propaganda. That's all it is. Now, aside from these three opposition parties, that the liberal fatherland party, which isn't about the fatherland at all, that the centrist Ukrainian Democratic Alliance for Reform, and the, the real nationalists, Sloboda Party, aside from them, there's 111 other seats that were opposed to and listed in the opposition to the party of regions. And all of those 111 seats are, are from non-affiliated parties, that, that they're from non-affiliated, that they're held by deputies who are not affiliated with any of these other parties. So that should tell you how fragmented the opposition was. That should also be a good indication as to how a party in the parliament of 450, a party that only has 128 seats, 
like the party of regions, can hold the government. So that, that's how fragmented Ukrainian politicians are. Now, now I want to talk about the real right-wing nationalist groups in the Ukraine. Well, we have the, uh, um, the Swoboda or the Freedom Party, and, and, and that's the largest nationalist party in the Ukraine. They have 36 seats in the parliament. That's it. There are no other nationalists like them in parliament. There are other nationalist groups, but they have no representation in parliament. One of those nationalist groups is called Right Sector. Um, I'm not going to try to say the word for right in, in Ukrainian. Uh, I'll spare you that. The, the right sector is about building a new Europe with Ukraine as a start. Now, the right sector also had a lot of affiliated people on the ground in the demonstrations. They did not have as many people as Svoboda had. They did not have the, the, the banners and, and the, the the, the visual appearance that Svoboda had, they still had a lot of people on the ground. Now, the right sector is about building a new Europe, but the right sector does not associate itself with Svoboda. Now, some sources claim to be that they don't do that because Svoboda is liberal and conformist. It is true that Svoboda tries to change the system from within the system. That's the same approach that, that the National Socialists in Germany took, and there's nothing wrong with that approach, that they can't really be, I wouldn't criticize them for that, and it was successful for Adolf Hitler. I don't think anybody's ever going to repeat that success, and that's sad, but they're taking the same approach. But by other accounts, the right sector does not associate itself with Svoboda because Svoboda is racist. And the right sector is not racist. They are not an ethnic nationalist group. The right sector is more anti-left, but they're not racial nationalists. The right sector is comprised of a mix of Ukrainian and Russian speakers. Some of the phrases that they use, however, are very good, and, and, and some of their language is very good. They describe the current political form with the phrase corrupt marginal democracy. That's true. They're disgusted with the Ukrainian system, which is really the, the, the Jews in control of a bureaucracy that runs after the manner of the old Soviet system. That's all it is in, in the Ukraine for the last 23 years. Second, however, the right sector stands against degeneration and totalitarian liberalism. And, and that phrase can refer to the EU as much as it could that more probably than it could refer to the, the, um, the, the Soviet system. But because the EU basically is totalitarian liberalism. That they're going, if you join the EU, if you have to accept sexual deviance and, and, and all kinds of perversion that, that goes along with liberal Europe and, and American politics today. They also use descriptions such as the cult of illicit gain and debauchery to, to, to um, describe the political climate in, in Ukraine today. So, so they basically, you know, the right sector, if you look at their rhetoric and their position, they're kind of like nationalists that refuse to be anti-Semites. That's what it boils down to them, that they refuse to be anti-Semites or, or, or to take any position on non-Ukrainians in Ukraine.
Ukraine. So, so they're more like, um, I, I, I don't know, they're kind of more like staunch American conservatives, I, I, but they don't quite fit that mold either. So they're hard to pin down, but it's a very new group, and it's probably still in its formative stages. It, time will tell. The, the other group is um, Spilna Sprava, and some sources translate Spilna Sprava as common cause, but the phrase actually better means union of the right. And, and Spilna Sprava also had a lot of people on the ground. They're distinct from Swoboda. They also had a lot of people on the ground doing some of the hard work during the recent demonstrations. Vilna Sprava is um, that, they also, that they also have a, a national socialist leaning, and, and they're new, and they don't yet have any representation in politics. Ukraine, Ukraine does not need the EU or Russia. Ukraine has plenty of its own natural resources and its ability to, to support itself. The president sent riot police against students who were demanding reforms, and that's what escalated the, these, um, these demonstrations that actually forced that president out of office. Students in Ukraine are um, very pro-Europe, and, and the youth of Ukraine is very pro-Europe. They identify themselves as Europeans, and, and they want to get away from that that, that Soviet and, and, and Russian association. The nationalist movements in, in the Ukraine are made up mostly of youth, and they favor Europe because they are anti-Russian, but they do not favor EU membership. They do not want anything to do with EU membership for the most part. They would rather keep Ukraine independent, strong, the strongest nationalist movement in the Ukraine is in Western, Central, and Northern Ukraine. That, that's Svoboda's power base. Svoboda got, in the last election, it got over 30% of the vote in certain regions in Western Ukraine, while in the East, which is the Russian border regions, and in the Crimea, Svoboda received only 1% to 4% of the vote in those regions. After this, this um, the handwriting on the wall was apparent, and, and, and it was apparent that Timoshenko's liberals were going to control the interim government. The Svoboda leadership had asked not to be considered for any part in the interim government. They did not want to be considered for, minister, for any ministerial offices in a new government and that's so that they could point, that they could remain in the opposition, hoping the nationalist hope is that all of the hard work they put into the success of these recent demonstrations would pay off in the next parliamentary elections. That's what their hope is, and the presidential election in May to have a good showing there. That's what their hope is. They are not a part of this new Ukrainian government. And anybody who repeats that Soviet propaganda, that Putin propaganda that's coming out of Russia today, 
is only uh, is only repeating lies. It, it's that simple. The ethnic Russians, you, you know, anybody in Europe who arises as a nationalist, and especially people that Russia has, Russia's had a great amount of control over the Ukraine, and and they hoped to keep that control, and and. and a nationalist movement in the Ukraine is automatically slandered by Russians with that Nazi epithet, as if it's a curse, and and they want to associate them with with all of the bad imagery with with which the Jews and Soviet Russians associate National Socialist Germany. There was a meeting in um, Sevastopol with with ethnic Russians that earlier this week with ethnic Russians chanting to the central administration of Sevastopol the term Nazi, Nazi, Nazi. Ethnic Russians in in Sevastopol and some of the other border states, the the, the districts, the Ukrainian districts which border Russia, they want to break away and go with Russia. Not because they want to, to, to uh, that, that they, they don't have any care for Ukrainians and, and, and that they see Ukrainian nationalists as Nazis. We have to understand the history of Russia and the brainwashing that those people have had the last 70 years, you see how fellow Americans or mainstream Americans are brainwashed against the Germans. Well, and German nationalism, the Russians are brainwashed 10 times more than the Americans. And any nationalism in the Ukraine is seen as fascism. It's seen as Nazis. And to this day, ethnic Russians, that their pride that their ethnic pride lies in their victory over the fascists and the Nazis of the 1940s. They still derive ethnic pride from that today. And that's, that, that's apparent. You, you go to Russia Today, the Russia Today website, and, and look at some of the things they're saying about Ukraine and nationalism in Ukraine or anti-Sovietism in Ukraine, and that's exactly how they frame their propaganda. And it's a damn shame for white nationalists in America, the, the ones that I've seen this week on certain websites, it's a damn shame that they're swallowing that propaganda. Because these Ukrainian nationalists, they know, they are well aware, the leadership of the Svoboda Party is well aware of the Jewish problem. And they've actually come out and vociferated over it, that they voiced statements about it many times. So, so it, it's the white nationalists, it, it's the, the Sloboda Party and the ethnic nationalists in Ukraine that white nationalists in Europe and, and America should be in standing in support of, at least vocally, if we can't do anything else to help them. And, and of course, we probably can't. But we should at least be behind them vocally, spiritually, and, and, and give them our support in, in any way we can. This interim government, 
But this all Ukrainian union, fatherland party, it's called in Ukrainian Bakibish Naya or something like I can't pronounce this stuff. I'm sorry. It, it, it means fatherland. They also call themselves the United Opposition Party. The opposition isn't united. Swoboda and, and even Klitschko's party, that they don't want anything to do with these people. They're just, that's their own propaganda, calling themselves the, the United Opposition. Calling themselves the Fatherland Party, that they're anything but pro-Fatherland. They're pro-EU membership. That's actually anti-Fatherland when you come to think of it. This is the party of this recently appointed, um, that this recently appointed president, Alexander Turchinov, he's the new president, the fifth president of the Ukraine. The first thing he did was spring Kim, Yulia Timoshenko from prison. And Timoshenko was the prime minister of Ukraine under Viktor Yushchenko. And Timoshenko was in, 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 in um, other administrations as well. All these people are, are in bed together. Timoshenko was one of the leaders of the Orange Revolution that made Yushchenko's presidency possible. Turchinov is from the same, virtually the same party background as Timoshenko. These people are tools of the oligarch establishment, or they are oligarchs themselves. They're Western-leaning liberals. They are not nationalists. Don't listen to the Russian propaganda. The... Um, even if the, the centrists on the Klitschko and the Svoboda party, even if they had their own coalition, they would only have 78 votes in a parliament of 450. Their hands are tied. The demonstrators did not force the parliament out. They only were able to force the president out and, and get him to leave his office. And, and now he's fleeing to Russia, and, and, and Putin has embraced him offered him refuge, and he's, he's in Russia claiming that he was never ousted. And that's what's happening right now, even though his entire the party had defected on him and went over to the liberals, basically. So, so this, um, the, the real opposition, uh, Klitschko's a centrist, he's not a nationalist, but he is opposition at least, and Sloboda, the, the most votes they could gather, even if they had their own coalition, and there's no talk, I haven't seen any talk of it, but, but that, that would be a, a, the, the best dream for, for justice in the Ukraine to break away from these oligarchs, and they can only get 78 votes in parliament if they wanted it. So, so forget it. The nationalists, they're, they're not going to be able to do anything in the Ukraine until they have votes. And, and, and that, that, that also was... Adolf Hitler's strategy, he understood that if the German people were not behind him, did not actually vote for him, that he couldn't do anything. And, and Svoboda's in the same shape today. The real nationalists in the Ukraine are in the same shape today. They hope that their work in these demonstrations pays off in the next two elections. Will it? We don't know. That's where, that, that's where we stand today. That's where nationalists and people that want to see nationalism succeed stand today in waiting for the May presidential election in the Ukraine and for the, the, the parliamentary election later this year to see if 
the Ukrainian people will actually remember what the national, what the real nationalists did in this, in in these demonstrations, and if they take that with them to the ballot box, and, and with, with the next two elections, that's how we will know if nationalism succeeds in Ukraine or not. That that's what's really going on in the Ukraine. I don't know if ProTank is on this line yet. If, if I can understand them yet, I, I don't know what's up. My, Mike, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Uh, can you hear me fine? No, you're you're very spotty. This is terrible. I, I'm sorry. Well, what's breaking news today is Arsene Yatsenyuk is um, is the, the the interim prime minister, and that there has been some sort of um, military operation in the Crimea around an airport that that was supposedly taken over by Russians, and and I don't know if it's it's shown that these men are Russians or not that these troops that took this airport over and, and um, it's said that they're Russians, it's believed the Ukrainians believe that they are Russians, that, um, that Russia is showing military might in the, um, in the Crimea. And, and I believe, my, for my own part, I believe that that is Russian saber rattling in order to discourage the rise of Ukrainian nationalism in order to discourage people from voting for these nationalist parties. The Russians are labeling the liberals that hold this new government as nationalists, but they're not nationalists at all. What upsets the Russians is that these liberals favor the EU rather than favoring Russia, where the government that was just ousted favored Russia. Now, the election expectations amongst people in, in Ukraine is that this Klitschko, this, this centrist, and he's not a nationalist, but he does stand against the Soviet corruption, this centrist is the best shot to win the presidential the, the presidential elections in May. If, he, if, if Klitschko wins the presidential elections, he's really not good for Ukrainian nationalists in that he's really just a compromise. Klitschko's centrist party, if that party wins the next elections, that's a compromise position. It's not a pro-nationalist one, even though it's, it, it's, uh, it, it's the, the outcome would be good as far as um, ho- hopefully keeping Ukraine from under Russian influence. It might result in, in, in an association or, or, or membership in the EU for Ukraine, and the nationalists don't want that either. That They don't want that either. That the, um, what the nationalists can hope for is to, to become the majority party in the parliament, and if that happens, that, that, that'll be a wonderful thing, and, and perhaps the Jews in Russia will want some war against Ukraine instead. But because nationalism is the enemy of the Jew. Mike, are you here? Yeah, I'm I'm here, Bill. 
I don't know how your audio, your audio quality might be better on Tosh's than it is for me. Perhaps um, well, we can get some feedback on that if you want to say something. Yeah, actually, everybody's saying that my audio is really good. If uh, You might want to hang up and call back in. I'm sorry, Mike. I really can't understand you that well. I, I don't know if you have a question or, or a statement. If you want to say anything, just go ahead. Um. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> you can't understand me, though? or Yeah, yeah. Right now, I'm understanding you fine. Okay. Okay. Um, wow. Yeah, I don't. Uh... Oh, jeez. Yeah, I don't know if it's uh, if wow. if it's work. Yeah, it's a sound bad, it's huh? It's falling apart. It's falling apart. I'm sorry. It's just falling apart. Hey, hey, Bill. Can you hear me? Uh, Mike, I'm told your audio is fine. So, so go ahead and say whatever you want to say. Well, yeah, but you got to call back in, Bill, so we can hear we can hear each other properly here. I guess really what I could say about um, about the Ukrainian thing, and I've been trying to pick up bits and pieces of this, is and, and pretty much to uh, dovetail what Bill has already brought up. Bill did a lot of research on this in the last few days, um, and certainly surpassed uh, the research I was able to do with what's been going on with me. But uh, you know, one of the things I, I, I find that's been going on, like Bill was naming a lot of other people are, are really jumping on a bandwagon on this way or that way. And we're not going to really understand what's going on until all the cards are on the table. That's the first thing I want to say. But before you even bring that up is, you know, back in 2007, I was caught up in it myself. A lot of people have this, um, this artificial savior type of mentality. And they're not, it's not necessarily in CI. Uh, most people in CI know who the right savior is. It's, it's more or less uh, people that are strictly into nationalism and uh, maybe atheism or, or a generic sense of Christianity or whatever the case might be. But um, you know, certainly if you're in CI, you're pretty concrete to know who the savior is, so to speak. And, and, uh, but a lot of people got hung up, and uh, I guess for people even in CI probably fell down this rabbit hole, is that we're going to have somebody that's going to come around and save us uh, a la Ron Paul is a big thing that happened, you know, that, that happened back then. And even people got caught up in that in 2012. Oh, Ron Paul's going to save us. But really in 2007, 2008, a lot of people thought that he was going to come save the day. And he wasn't saying anything. And, you know, I, I know there's a lot of people hung up on possibly Putin. The, the whole Putin thing is really polarized. It's either he's a commie Jew uh, working for the Jews is a Jew and everything else is a Jew, 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 Jew. It's almost like a Republican Democrat thing. Either he's a complete Jew or he's the next savior of the white world out here. And I don't fall really in any one of those categories because, quite frankly, he hasn't really shown me, say, anything of him being a complete Jewish puppet. 
I'm sure we have all seen the pictures of him throwing on his yarmulke and sitting next to the rabbis and all that. You know, because somebody can make an argument, well, that's playing politics, right? Okay. But at the same time, somebody can say, hey, he, you know, he's got to play politics, so, but he's really going to really rail against the Jews. He just can't make a move because so-and-so runs, is in the government still, the financial, the media, and this is run by Jews, so he doesn't have a lot of room. But that's the problem is, is like we were talking about the nationalist groups, is, is you really don't know what's going to be on the table until later on down the road. Time will tell. And, and really, for me, it's not going to matter either way, is it? I mean, other than maybe the Ukraine being the canary in the, in the, in the coal mine, as they say, as far as maybe future wars coming up. But as far as my personal life, and a lot of you guys as well, what exactly goes on with Ukraine and where exactly Putin stand isn't going to directly affect us for me to have to put all my chips in a polarized basket, so to speak. And, and that's where I stand with the Putin thing as far as, and, and I'm sure Bill would agree on that, is that we don't necessarily need to jump out the window. We can wait and see what happens. Uh, certainly Putin has done some things that look pro-Jewish, and then he's done some things that have fought against Jewish vices, uh, homosexuality and stuff, which he hasn't really, really been that strong on. It's just a little bit of footsteps he has made on it. Uh, look in such staunch reality uh, and such staunch difference to the reality we have here in the United States where you have got to accept all forms of debauchery and homophagotry and everything else here so to to a point where, you know, it, it's ridiculous. Whereas in, in Russia, they, they at least take a little bit of a stand against it, and that's looked as, as some, you know, great feat that he's doing, you know, but it really isn't. It, it's... I mean, hey, the, the Muslims are doing better with the, with the faggotry than Russia is, but we're not sitting here saying Muslims are going to be our saviors against the Jew. Of course not. So, you know, but when it comes to Ukraine, there's a lot of things at play right now, a lot of power vacuums, uh, as, as Bill has done very well tonight, breaking down the parties in Savada and such. Savada basically being equivalent to, you know, MPD in Germany, uh, Golden Dawn in Greece, and, you know, these other nationalist parties that aren't afraid to come out and identify the, the hook-nosed demon for what he is that is behind all the strife. Um, you know, the, and another thing is, too, is that the cultural difference. I think Bill pointed that as well. Is you have a lot of cultural differences, and it's kind of hard as, a, as somebody that, you know, myself, I've never been overseas. I've, I've been on this continent my whole life, never made it anywhere else. So I don't understand the cultures that are going on over there, even within our own our own race over there, you know, it's, it's difficult to understand. I hear a lot of stories of how much different it is when you go to Germany versus Britain versus Ireland versus Ukraine and so on and so forth. So, and, and I think another thing that's at play here is lack of information. You have a lot of people on the internet here in the States, believe it or not, there are lots of us out here that know about the Jew, that know about the Holocaust, that know about 9-11. There's a lot of people that know about Christian identity. I mean, Bill has been getting these killer numbers out here because, you know, it's, it's, it's simply only a fringe, as, as some might want to try to paint it out to be. It's, a lot of people are coming to find identity. A lot of people are coming to find out about the Jew. And I think that's stretching across a lot of races as well. Not that, it, not that I, I care either way, but... Uh, the, the more thorns in, in the Jews, but is the better for me as far as I'm concerned. Now, that you know, that said, I, again, look at the cultural differences. They don't have, say, maybe the time, maybe the, the technology over there quite yet to uh, really be, really be able to 
collect some of the some of the data we've been able to do over here. You know, things are always pretty peaceful and calm and, and so on and so forth. So we're able to really do the research over here on who's who. You know, like we can tell you that Ron Paul wrote a book with David Learman back in the 80s, A Case for Gold. Uh, David Learman was the head of the peanut group. So when we see Ron Paul try to come up and be savior, we know he's full of it. We know he's right in bed with the juice. Um, whereas people over there, they might – might be really gung-ho about, you know, being nationalism, and they know the Jew is bad, and they know they need to stick to their own, but they don't really know the inner politics, and I think a lot of people in the United States do, which is maybe why things don't move here at all. You know, things are always at a standstill, and and maybe people know things to a fault here. You know, there's that old saying where you're uh, you're too stupid for your own good or too smart for your own good, you know, Uh, and I think there's some of that at play where, uh, you know, there's, you know, what's, what's the saying? I think, Bill, you remember this. It's too many chiefs and not enough uh, chieftains or whatever that case is. But, you know, this uh, – it is exciting. It's not exciting seeing people get killed over there in Ukraine like they are, but it is, it is exciting to see uh, – how to put it the, – the deck getting shuffled. shuffled. Uh, it's, it's exciting to see that happen anywhere, really, because – we all know that in pretty much every country right now, a Jew has got a, a darn good amount of influence or complete control. Well, that spans in Russia, Iran, even uh, especially Greece, and so on and so forth. But, uh, you know, the, one of the things I think people got confused about with the Iceland uh, incident that happened was that Iceland was able to throw off the bankers and say, you know, screw Britain, we're not paying back the, back the debt. And you know, I, I saw a lot of uh, anti-Zionist, liberal-minded type people that thought, well, that's the answer for all of us to thwart the Jew from our midst in our nations. And no, it's not. Let me let me break down the difference between some place like Greece, Ukraine, or for that matter, especially places like Germany, Norway, and Sweden. These other countries, aside from Iceland, first of all, Iceland geographically is out in the middle of nowhere in the North Atlantic, right? The country has less people than we have up here in Upper Peninsula of Michigan, which is sparsely dense, uh, sparsely populated. You know, you're talking less than 300,000 people. Uh, you know, pretty much every major American city has at least triple, quadruple that, right? So when you see a country like that, a lot of people got hung up on, oh, well, they threw off the bankers, so... We could do this peacefully, and maybe if we just expose the Jews, they'll go away. These bastards are not going to go away because they're being exposed. People, when when people start to try to throw them off, uh, that's what's going to happen. Is what you see the violence happening. What you start to see slowly happen in, in Greece here and there, with you know the rapper being killed and people being locked up, and uh, you know these these moves, these political moves are happening. But this is exactly what happens when somebody tries to throw off the yoke of the Jew. It becomes violent. It happened during Hitler's time. Obviously, everybody you know, that's researched that saw the, the big battles between the nationalists and the commies back then. And it's, it's like that here in the streets of America when nationalists try to go out and speak or uh, you know, commies, commies are around. And, and, uh, and same in Canada, same, same in all white countries, really. So uh, this, this idea that that uh, we can throw off the Jew like Iceland did, it's, it's not going to happen anywhere else at all. It's just not going to be the case. So, um, There was a uh, somebody said in the chat room, Iceland's president is married to an Israeli. Well, I didn't know that. If that's the case, that makes more 
It makes all the sense. And if that's the case, point, going back to Ukraine, this is what we have is we got Jews being appointed to, to roles of politics there. And it's, and we have to understand that just because, you know, there was a, there, let me back up a little bit here too. Back about two or three years ago, I don't think you guys remember this, but um, Moldova, you had groups of nationalists, uh, and I don't know exactly what groups they were, if they were Jew-wise, but they were tired of communism. That's what they were basically. They were pissed because communism supposedly, we all know who runs the voting devices, right? Communism was supposedly voted in once again, and they stormed the parliament and took it over. And then two day, less than two days later, they gave the place up and let the police come in there peacefully. Everything went peacefully, but and I never did find out what happened. But that's uh, you know, it was a positive effort to see. But no, I don't think anything ever became of it because, well, first of all, how could you? You know, how could any of these countries? I don't think even the Golden Dawn gets successful. They have enough people right now to to completely overthrow that country and turn it com- completely national. Um, you know, they have the people's support, uh, you know, they, they're well-known. Um, they have a lot of the police and military behind them. And I think one of the reasons where I was talking to somebody else the other day about this is the big thorn in Europe to stop anybody from really going nationalist is this Babylon right here in America. Because we know darn well, just like the ADL was sending over their troops, their little Yiddish hook-nosed bastards over there in, in Greece, you know, throwing all over the media, trying to demonize Golden Dawn. It's not going to work, right? But, you know, they'll take step, they'll take measures a little further like they did with arresting all the top guys. And if that doesn't work, they'll just do like they do in uh, in Germany. I believe they just tried to ban the MPD or whatever a while back. And they're going to play dirty like that. And I guess at some point that's going to help solidify them in their efforts because the more that the Jew has to acknowledge us like that, the more they expose themselves in the hypocrisy. That's the big thing. That's going to get all these, like, sheep-type people out here in the public is the hypocrisy of it. You know, they, they, really, they really believe they live in a fair system. You know, you talk to some of these people on the street, they really believe, well, the government couldn't be that evil. Or the Jews couldn't be bad people. And, but when they get to see that firsthand, that you know, someone like Golden Dawn is playing fair and winning naturally in elections, and then they come with these trumped-up charges that they were this and this and that when nothing happened. That really, that really actually uh, backfired on them. So, I don't know, Bill. Are Bill? Are you back on? He says, uh, "Mike is down. We can make some closing remarks. We cannot interact." Hey, I got a, a lot of uh, feedback coming from you there, Bill. Um, I'm going to go ahead and mute mine for a second. If you want to chime in from this point, go ahead. Okay, I'm sorry about the feedback and, and about cutting you off. I can't really hear you, Mike. I really can't, and, and I'm sorry. I don't know. I have a bandwidth issue here, possibly. I, I, I don't know, or a Skype issue in, in Virginia where my computer is, and, and I can't do anything about that until I get there. So it, it's, um, I, I, did this, I used the same scheme the last, uh, the last time I traveled in South Carolina last month and had no problem doing a program from there the same way. And I actually used the same scheme because of my microphone problems at home last week, and I had no problem 
doing a program in, in the same way with Swordsworth and last Saturday. So I'm sort of nod to myself over my technical issues. I apologize. The, um, Mike is absolutely right, and, and I wrote a paper several years ago. We have no political solution to our problems. The next curer is Yahshua Christ. He, he is the only curer. He is our Messiah. He is our Savior. He is the only one that could get us out of this mess of, of Jewish world domination that we're in. And for, for it for no other reason than 99% of our own white brethren are absolutely blind. They're worshiping Jews. They're worshiping niggers. That they don't see that there is a problem, and they're never going to believe us when we tell them. Why do I like to watch to watch nationalist movements? Why do I like to um, to, to keep my, my eye on the pulse of the natu- nationalist movements in the United States and Europe, well, well, you know, for the most part, I don't care what Golden Dawn does. Golden Dawn's leadership, yeah, they're, they're anti-Jew and they're anti-banker and all that's good, but their leadership is basically a bunch of sand niggers themselves. I, I don't have any love for Golden Dawn. I honestly don't. But Swoboda, this Swoboda group, I think, is different. Because these people are openly um, praising, you know, referencing and praising God on their website first, and that they are aware of the issues surrounding the Jews, and they're Christians. And and to understand and to keep a a finger on the pulse of that, that, that Christian white nationalism in the Ukraine, that that's um, a good indication, I believe, that, that there is some hope of, of an awakening for whites everywhere. Well, whites that can be quote unquote anti Semites and at the same time still be Christians, that, that's, a, that, that's basically a wonderful thing. But most of the um, white nationalists worldwide have a, abandoned religion, have abandoned Christ. And um, basically, without Christ, we have no future at all. That's the way it is. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for your remarks. Thanks for being here. I'm I'm sorry we couldn't have a better, more interactive program. Perhaps we'll do a follow-up on this topic in, in the near future. I will be um, off tomorrow night. Sword Brethren and the Kaiser will be will be filling in for me. They're going to talk about Hitler's defense of Germany in in, in 1939 from from a from a um, from a nationalist and geopolitical viewpoint once again. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh. This is William Fink, Christagenia.org. I'll be here next week with Micah, Part Three. Good night. Yahweh bless. Good night.